Welcome back to In Session with Jared and Clay. I'm Dr. Jared Cox, and today I'm going to play the second half of last week's session where we were talking about how individualism and ignorance contribute to racism. And right here, we're picking up with the question that, to be honest, I've known the answer to for a long time, at least until Clay and I started this podcast. And now I'm not so sure about it. The question is, can blacks be racist? Every book I get my hands on right now says it's impossible for blacks to be racist. Because racism is more than just prejudice. It's more than just discrimination. Racism is a system that is structured to favor the majority. And with the black population making up only 13% of the United States, it's theoretically impossible for the black populations to hold the majority power. But even though all the best-selling books define racism within that systemic context, public perception doesn't seem to agree. Or at least it doesn't appear that they understand racism that way. And it leaves us confused. Has the definition of racism changed? Are we trying to hold on to an antiquated definition that hasn't stayed up with cultural progress? Or has the majority American public simply misunderstood the definition all along? We'll see if we can get a little bit of clarity today. Thanks again for being with us. I hope you enjoy the show. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Are you ready? Let's go. So I had an interesting question put to me this week, and it was this. Can blacks be racist? Because the definition that's being put out there right now is that racism requires a system and that it is a structure. And it's not just how one individual feels about a whole class of other people based on their skin color. It's much bigger than that. It's much more inclusive than that. And for a lot of people, that's a big change. So they ask, can blacks be racist? Doesn't according, exist. Doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah. According. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. so I coach, cause, cause here's the deal. According to. That's a standard thought. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, according to an article I read this week in the Washington Times, in opposition to the idea that blacks cannot be racist because the majority power in America belongs to the whites and our system favors the majority, as many as 75% of adult Americans define racism as discrimination by a person or a group against another group. 75% of the people don't believe in the idea that racism comes from our system. They think racism is defined in terms of the individual. And so you have people like Robin DiAngelo, the author of White Fragility, saying things like white people don't understand socialization. In other words, ignorance and individualism are a problem. And that problem leads us to believe that we are separated from the problem of racism in America. That's a real problem. If that is accurate, if 75% are viewing that as the definition of racism, that is remarkably too narrow. That is, that is constrained way down. That is one example of what racism holds. Mm -hmm. But to see racism as just that, you know, that's, that's very problematic because that does allow me then 75% mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. say to exclude myself right. mm -hmm. from that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what's so problematic. Racism must be the definition. It must be expanded 
you know, to that level where it, it's much more complex and much more inclusive. Let me give an example. Can I? This yeah, just comes absolutely. to just comes to my head right off the. Maybe this, you know, here here's what it's like. This is what systemic racism, you know, would be like. For some reason, humans have the propensity to draw a distinction. <laughs> it's arbitrary. We decide where to draw the distinction. You right, know, it's right. something as stupid as skin color. We'll do that. But let's let's say that's that's not happening. That we are we are arbitrarily drawing a distinction between right-handed people and left-handed people. Let's say that it's all about handedness. <laughs> we'll we'll coin that term. So we're here we're sitting here talking about the effects of handedness. And uh, I don't know if any of you are left-handed or if you have anybody left-handed in your family, but you can think about this. When you went to elementary school, you sat in a little self-contained desk, okay, that was structured for right-handed people. Mm -hmm. It had the little armrest coming up the side, and it morphed into the little platform there, and the book hole is down, you know, to your left. Right. And while I must acknowledge that there are a few of those self-contained left-handed desks, there is not many. Right. Right. And so if you are left-handed, you lived with sitting all of your school day as a little elementary and junior high and high schooler, hiked up on, you know, one half of your butt, turned sideways with your arm crooked around to fit on this desk that was made for right-handers. And when you needed to go sharpen your pencil, you walked up to the <laughs> pencil sharpener and you had to learn how to sharpen your pencil, <laughs> right? Okay, because there's no left-handed pencil sharpeners out there. And then when you went to the time for a little craft fair, you had to pick up the right-handed scissors and try to right. awkwardly learn wow. how to do this. Yes. And so if we were then, as left-handed people, to rise up and say, wait a minute, this, this whole thing is kind of built for right-handers and we're having a bit of a we're having some struggles here, you know. My hips out of whack. My knees won't work. My my left wrist is crooked. Uh, you know, it's it's ridiculous. Now, how would that be received? Well, I'm I'm going to tell you how it's received. The makers of the self-contained little desks mm -hmm. are looking at the eleven percent of the people who are left-handed and going, hmm, can't sell them. Should we retool and produce, you know, of our gross market, should we produce 11% uh, left-handed desk to go along with our right-handed desk? That would be really the responsible right, thing to right. do, right? Right, right. And uh, with pencil sharpeners and scissors and tune. And they think about that for about 15 seconds and say, nah, you left-handers, you just deal with it. Now, that may be an absurd example, but it speaks to the level of systemic process that we're talking about. Right. Because if you're a left-hander, you can kick and scream and holler and do anything and everything you want to, as loud as you want to be, but you're going to be sitting in a right-handed desk 
for your entire educational system. Now, is that crippling? Does that hurt you? I'm, I'm not drawing an analogy between the pain and suffering and injustice and hate. You understand that. I'm simply drawing an analogy to the process of what systemic majorityism is. Right. And in a, in a very real way, the people of color who are the minority, okay, live with that same process and with the same response to that process. If we accept this systemic definition of racism, though, that can be quite painful. The other day I saw a chart titled Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness. I have it right here. This chart bullet points all these characteristics of whiteness in the United States, and it makes people mad. They find it insulting that they can have that kind of label Mm -hmm. put on them. They find it quite maddening that they can, that you can put in print in mainstream media to say, this is what white culture is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't that interesting that they're upset (laughs) about the labeling (laughs) in response to listening to thousands of cries for help for hundreds of years. Yeah, and but the thing is they feel like now we have a double standard. They feel like, hey, it's okay to label white people in public. It's not okay to label blackness in public. Get your head chopped off for that. It'd be interesting to know some of the things on that on that chart. Could you just sure a couple of the bullet points on there? Rugged individualism. Okay. The individual is the primary unit. Self-reliance, independence, and autonomy are highly valued and rewarded. Individuals are assumed to be in control of their environment. You get what you deserve. Mm. That's part of whiteness. Family structure. The nuclear family. Father, mother, two to three children. 2.3 children is the (laughs) ideal social unit. (laughs) Husband's the breadwinner, head of the household. Wife is a homemaker and subordinate to the husband. Yeah, that goes mm. over real mm. well these days. Mm. Children should have their own rooms. Oh, They should be independent. There's an emphasis on the scientific method. Objective, rational, linear thinking. Cause and effect relationships, quantitative emphasis. History is based on Northern European immigrants' experience in the United States. Heavy focus on the British Empire. The primacy of Western and Judeo-Christian tradition. Protestant work ethic. Time. You follow rigid time schedules. Time is viewed as a commodity. All these things are, ca- are categories or characteristics of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, about half of the people, uh, uh, so, you know, some of the people that I know who saw this, about half of them didn't say anything. Right, right. And a couple of them, white people, they said... Why would you be upset with this? It's absolute truth. <laughs> and then you have some of them that are going, I cannot believe they said that. I am furious at that. Right, right, right. If you, if you look at that list and you organize around it as an accusation. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And you try to respond to it in a false dichotomy, you're going to find those two examples. Right. But, but maybe... As human beings, we can expand 
our way of thinking to go beyond a simple false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the things that were listed there are very valuable traits. If they are in appropriate context and held with an appropriate tension. You know, it's it's not look at the list and go evil or good. But if that's the only way you can approach, you know, an idea, you're going to be funneled, you know, in in that direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I find it fascinatingly ironic <laughs> that that people would object and say so you, you you can't write this stuff down. That's a double standard now. And I've and I've heard this before. And I, I'm like, what planet have you been on? Yeah. I mean, the minorities and people of color have been subjected to that very same process for hundreds of years by someone else. Is by, what they say. Yeah, by yeah. whoever. And it's even written down in in many cases too. And so, right. how ironic that when it comes our turn <laughs> to have something written down, we cry injustice. Right. That's with, right. With ignoring the larger picture. Right. Of should we say in in our present situation there is injustice for all, just as much as there should be justice for all. all. And the and the for all, that's that's where we have to get. And individualism works against that. I will tell you that I truly believe that the majority of the middle class and upper class, you know, white people in this country have lost all sense of community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they they're not connected except possibly to their nuclear family, extended family. But there's there's a, we don't sit around the fire anymore and listen to the elders talk and tell stories of the days of old mm-hmm. right but your lower middle class you know and your lower class still maintain a sense of community right mm-hmm. there's a bit of a connection there because they sp- spend more time together they pass those stories from generation yeah. to generation yeah. and yeah. so i'm not suggesting that we go socialistic and communistic and share the wealth and and reduce classism. I'm just observing the fact that uh, uh, the sense of community remains stronger the poorer you are. Yeah, yeah. And how that plays into what we're actually talking about, I'm not sure. It's just an observation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, in theory, right, the people just generalizing, I'm sure, but in theory, if you have done done well, been successful in life, you're you're going to attribute that to say, my philosophy of life must be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, right? must must right, be working. Right, right. Yeah. I'm successful. What I'm doing right. is is working for me, right? And what the way they think is obviously not working for them. Right, right. We started the show, right? We started the show. Why, you know, what does it take to hear better? And we said. Ignorance and individualism are a problem, and it's becoming ever more apparent to me that they're gigantic problems. But if you aren't even aware of the depth to which you buy into the individualism ideology, 
That is a big, giant wall. That looks as if you're ignorant. Yes. But all the markers of your life may say otherwise. And that that is a huge barrier, I think, for people to feel like they are the ones that need to own change. Mm-hmm. They are responsible to. I mean, it's just hard to be motivated to change to change when you think that what you're doing is working for you or, or in, for you. And 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 I'll take it a step further, Jared. To, to be real on, I, I I will throw some honesty in there. Uh, to a little more honesty to that thing. What you are doing also is, is working, but also makes you better than. Oh, Hey. And I, and I, and I think a lot of people think that way. Yeah. Listen, I've thought that way. Sure. I've thought that way. I am. Okay. Sitting here coaching. I have a doctorate. So I'm doing this and I'm having to go out and cut the soccer field. Yeah. That's not my job. Right. That's not, let somebody else do that. Let somebody else do that. Maybe somebody, let's just throw it out there. Maybe somebody that doesn't have a doctorate or a master's or someone and just let them cut grass. Because that is not, that's, that's, I'm better than that. I have thought that way. And I think that's the problem is, you, you know, one of the things you said, you're looking at what I'm doing is working for me. What they're doing is not working, but is the person that is doing what I think is not working. They're thinking, yeah, this works for me. Well, why, how's that working for you? I wouldn't want to be doing that. So I, I'm, you know, I'm better than that becomes a way of looking at, Life becomes a way of looking at people. It becomes a way of we, we judge uh, others uh, in comparison, this competition again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a dangerous, dangerous way to look at things and to, to relate and to, to or I guess, correlate yeah. uh, uh, life mm-hmm. and people and value. We mentioned that word value. That's a danger. So these, these things... You know, we determine, it's almost like we determine people's value by what they do or by what they have or by how they live or, and then people that feel undervalued, they start to even look at their lives as, I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not good. I'm not good enough. That's not true either. I think that's a a false narrative, a very false narrative and a dangerous narrative. One that breeds feelings of hate. Feelings of, of, you know, dislike or feelings of, uh, you know, like I said, being undervalued that can lead to hate, that can lead to whatever hate brings. And and that's that's a dangerous, dangerous way to live. It's a dangerous way to view things. That's just a that's just a thought. Mm, um, amen. And and all the while intellectually knowing that uh, I can't admit to that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Operationally, I'm going to function as if I'm better than you but intellectually i will deny it right because i'm smart enough to know you can't say that right right Right. what i'm offering for our consideration is i don't care what you say it's it's how you live and how you interact in relationship with people that screams louder than anything right? right and um yeah and that 
And I think there's a lot to that, Greg. I think there's a lot yeah. of people that really do think they're better. And and they also think the solution is, back, Jared, to what you were mentioning is, hey, if you just do what I do, that's then right. you'll make it. You'll make yeah. it. And yeah. it's about like, you know, telling the left-handers that if you just get over it and you'll, you, you know, you'll just, right. you'll just do it. And my, my issue, anytime that I have felt less than, Okay, I will say this. You you know, you 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 mentioned this this list here, this chart. The times that have bothered me most about film is not when a person has come up and told me I'm better than you. It's the times that you've treated me that way, but you didn't say it. I wish you'd have just said it to me instead of doing stuff to make me feel less than but you didn't even have the courage to say it you know so you're talking about this poll and people feeling upset. well there's some bigger people out there than me there's a lot of big (laughs) but you know it's uh it's almost as if i would rather at least somebody say publicly this than you know you're talking about i think you're talking about a culture i think you're talking about a race that well it has been said publicly but a race that has been made to feel less than, and they didn't even bother to say it. They didn't even bother to be, on it, be honest with us and say you're less than. And I think that that you know that's been hurtful. That that's been that's been hurtful. And I and listen, I'm not above it either. I've done the exact. Same. I've yeah, done that. Yeah, yeah. I've done that. That makes me think of the late '50s, the early '60s. Like I talked to my grandfather who is uh, going to be 87 this year. And he grew up in Galveston, and he grew up under Jim Crow, mm-hmm. right? And and what he always tells me is, even though we were separated, man, like our black community, we were so connected and close to mm-hmm. one another. And I think on the white side, in the white spaces, it may have felt the same way. And although Jim Crow was horrible, my grandpa says, one positive thing about it is you kind of knew how people felt about each other, right? right? Like you knew your left and right limits. It was super, super clear. And today it's not really, really, really clear. Um, And it also makes me think about, I was watching a documentary. I love watching documentaries on, on Bobby Kennedy. However you feel about the Kennedys, you know, that's your business. But what made Bobby Kennedy so powerful is he left the strategic level and came down to the tactical Mm -hmm. level. You talked about you, being yes. the coach, but mowing the grass. Yes. And what that does to the people on the tactical level is it 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 motivates them, it excites them, it makes them feel like they have a voice, right? And and I was just thinking about that. I said, man, that's what made that's really what shifted the black space to the Democratic Party, <laughs> right? If you yes. think about it, yes. right? Because somebody from that level came down and actually was willing to listen and and to be a part of it. And you know, going back to this list, if I'm if I'm a white man, you know, I switch and try to put my white hat on <laughs> from time to time. Uh, We're going to get Jason you know, a number I'm a, of hats. I'm going to put on my white hat. <laughs> you know, I, I think the aversion to this list that you mentioned earlier is whenever you put people in camps, there's always an aversion mm-hmm. to it, right? Like mm-hmm. all people are this way, all people are that way. So maybe yeah. that's the aversion, not that these might not be true, but that you're placing me into a camp and don't place me, place me anywhere. Right. And and maybe that's the the challenge as well. And I think maybe in fact, racism 
is the byproduct of all of these issues that we've been talking about. Yes. That's what we're defining here today. Yes. Race, we're starting with racism, but if you pull back the layers of that onion, you'll start to get to the core of the real issues. And I think we define two of them today, right, that are so, so clear, ignorance and individuality. And I think what's so fascinating about what's going on today is God might be saying, oh, you guys like to be individualistic? COVID, bam. Now, yeah. nobody can be with anybody, right? You stay in your little pods and your little groups and don't interact. And your camp. And your camp. <laughs> and what people are sick of is being separated mm -hmm. now. So it's very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if if all of this stuff that we're dealing with now is 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 just a, being a mirror held up to us and saying maybe our com common enemy today is our individualism and we have forgot about community and how we ought to care for one another. Yeah, there you and, go. And maybe this yeah, is man. the wake up moment. Maybe COVID is waking us up to that, right? I don't, I don't know. When Clay and I decided to make this podcast, the core idea was to create more unity in our world and to hold that unity sacred. But as we're going about this, we want to try to change the way people think and the way we think so that our thinking becomes increasingly considerate of things like connectedness, relationship, unity. You know, and today I have heard that word think a bunch of times. And this whole process of this podcast has been a lot about discovery for me. Our conversations are enlightening. They bring more self-awareness. And having these conversations is challenging and changing. And I'm Super thankful for that. Because as we go through these talks, I become much more aware of what is deep inside me. And finally being able to see that and to hear how it stacks up next to one of the biggest problems in our world, it's kind of scary, but it also lights a fire. Never before had I thought about how my individualism affects other people, particularly in regard to racism. So I hope our listeners can hear that really happening. And I hope they can be encouraged to do the same. You have to be able to unpack these abstractions and these these words and these meanings and what it means to people. And, and I will tell you that the most challenging and difficult thing about therapy, you know, working in that context, mm -hmm. is getting people to look at themselves. They just don't want to do it. They usually come, and at least in the beginning of the process, they're wanting me to join with them in explaining why it's everybody else or the situation or or whatever the case may be. And, and your point is very valid because, you know, if we, if we can't all step back create enough space for consideration and look at ourself, we can't get this thing moved. If we can do that, we're, we're going to get some traction. And I will tell you, I believe, and I mentioned this earlier uh, off, the, uh, off the show, that, that I believe that the younger generations 
are situated to do that. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Great job, guys. Thanks for doing it. Hey, everybody out there, find someone that you don't know and do something kind for them. There you go. Man. So today I heard that the definition of racism hasn't really changed. It's the objectives that have changed. Today, when we think about racism, we can't really think of it quite like fighting for the right to pick our seat on the bus. Today's objectives are to repair the road system underneath that bus. And I also heard a confession, a humble confession of better than thinking. And I'm thankful Greg had the courage to do that. And as much as I hate it, I'm going to have to admit that I have to do that. I also have been guilty of better than thinking. I have thought that I am better than all the people who are breaking windows and setting fires and looting like crazy. But although what they are doing is wrong, I can't let myself think that I'm better than them because it's just not true. I wish I didn't have to say that. I wish none of us had to say that, but we do. And now you've heard two of us say it, so it's your turn. And I heard that maybe we just don't like someone else putting us into camps. You don't have the right to publicly categorize me, especially if I don't have the right or the freedom to publicly categorize you. Yeah, I hear you. But there are 400 years of history that say we have a hearing problem. And today, so today, this moment in history needs us to listen better than ever before. If you're looking for a way to make a heartfelt difference, lead by listening. Speaking of listening, thank you for listening to us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of our mission what we're trying to do. Make sure you hit subscribe and turn on your notifications and help us get the word out. Invite your friends, invite your family, tell everyone you know to come see us on InSessionPodcast.com. We'll see you next week on In Session with Jared and Clay.